Hi everyone, uh, you are listening to Love, Death and Desire, an anthropology podcast. Uh, you have with you Hossam and Matilda as your host today. Hello. I sound so much perkier than I'm feeling right now. <laughs> <laughs> so in the in the last episode, um, we talked about the start of anthropology as a discipline and how it changed over the years. And we, we talked a little bit about how uh, you and I got into um, anthropology and yeah. our thoughts on the discipline. We have shamelessly shafted ethnology as a discipline. We're hoping <laughs> to get better at that. <laughs> but for now, <laughs> it's anthropology all the way. Yeah. Um, so in the, in the second episode, we wanted to talk about an important topic, um, which is understanding culture and understanding the term culture. Mm. Um, and we we want to understand um, what culture is in and its relationship to anthropology. There has been a very this this term has been very important for um, the study of anthropology in its early beginnings, but also um, throughout until until now. Basically, uh, there are still a lot of debates and discussions around the term and and how it changes and so on. And I think that it might be especially important that we take this approach because our discipline is technically cultural anthropology. It's not forensic anthropology. It's not, I mean, social anthropology is not hugely different nowadays, but like culture is our leading word yeah. at this university. <laughs> um, yeah. And the, and basically just the way we want to structure um, today's episode is to discuss um, the understanding of culture through, um, you know, different concepts and through different um, periods of time. Uh, so first we will talk about cultural evolutionism. Uh, and it, it was a common way at looking at culture change in the probably the earlier to mid uh, 1800s or even to the late 1800s uh, by anthropologists and uh, social scientists. And then we will discuss cultural relativism and uh, and how this has changed, you know, the way we look at uh, at culture, uh, culture change. Um, and then obviously it's very important when we're talking about culture change to talk about uh, culture, uh, to, to talk about ethnocentrism uh, and how this, um, you know, affects the way we view our culture and other cultures uh, in relation um, to that. Uh, and then... Um, we, throughout all of this, we'll be talking about, you know, our personal experiences and, you know, um, things that we've encountered whilst trying to, you know, understand culture in our studies mm. and so on. Just our thoughts. <laughs> and uh, I think that we we have deliberately chosen not to spend too much time on trying to define what culture is, because then we will need more than an hour, definitely. Uh, <laughs> so as a... And it also becomes kind of a pointless question at some point because uh, for understandable reason, uh, because culture, I think, traditionally in anthropology is, like I said, a very broad concept. And I think the best definition you could give where that's like the broadest and most encompassing is that everything that is not biologically inherent in humanity is culture. So you are not born knowing your native language, for example. That is something that you acquire uh, depending on where and when you are raised, right? Um, and of course, the problem with that, even that very broad term, is that it's difficult to draw any sort of lines. What is culture and what is nature, so to speak? Is this huge question that can be 
discussed and problematized until the end of time at this point. Um, and, you know, do, do animals have culture, for example? Uh, these are questions that people are still trying to figure out how to, you know, relate to. Um, um, and, of course, that's also ties into a bit of what you talked about uh, in the last episode, what is cult what we try to figure out what culture is by looking at what do humans do and what do they do differently um so for that reason we've chosen not to try to have a very you know a succinct definition of culture but we are going to talk about why um like how anthropologists have tried to understand uh culture and cultural change yeah um exactly yeah. and i think in the starting point for us is, is is cultural evolutionism because um this was you know one of the earliest understandings of 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 culture change um and you know we start with uh with Durkheim who was um not an anthropologist uh himself but um you know he contributed a lot to this uh, the, the early definition or the early mm. understanding of cultural evolution um, and you know one of you know f most important you know contributions or one of the contri uh, important contributions was the division of labor uh, in society and that was written in the late 1800s um, without getting too much details into that but basically he was concerned about how society operates and maintains its coherence mm -hmm. um, and so he kind of suggested that culture is identified through you know kind of two patterns you're either primitive or civilized and that is in relation to um, the division of labor, and obviously there is a lot of problematic uh, I, um, notions around around this, you know, kind of binary distinction between uh, primitive uh, and civilized. Mm. Um, so basically, arguing that uh, when we ha we don't have we have very little division of labor, then we're kind of primitive, and then when we have more division of labor, then that becomes a more modern society. Um, so think about a baker, for example, who does every single step. Mm. Um, of that, you know, from the baking, getting the ingredients together, putting them together, baking, and then finally selling. So doing all of that themselves, that baker is sort of primitive. But then when we have modern um, machinery or modern uh, bakery where we have different people doing different parts of this uh, of this process, then that becomes, you know, kind of a more modern society. And obviously this look was very much look, uh, looking at... Um, and in, in, in the in the culture of industry mm. uh, as, as such, and the and right because so Dukam was what's interesting about Dukam is that he was very much writing based on the changes that he could observe take place in his own lifetime as Europe grew increasingly industrialized. Mm. So the focus on labor is not a coincidence, yeah. so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and this was this was kind of roughly around the same time when. Um, Another Brit a British anthropologist, uh, Edward Bernard Tyler, uh, was publishing um, some of, again, one of the most known books. Wouldn't I don't want to say most important, but I want to say known books, The Primitive Culture. That was in the late 1800s. And this was done after um, his ethnographic work in... Um, in uh, there's a beep sound <laughs> <laughs> in the headphones. There's some uh, updates, some Windows <laughs> updates. Probably, yeah. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so basically this was done after a few years uh, living and studying Mexican culture. Um, and then you can see in his writing um, that was actually published uh, years later, uh, kind of hints of superiority uh, of the 19th century Englishman in judging other I cultures. Think, I think hints was a very, you know, a gentle word. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to be a bit <laughs> diplomatic with that, but... Uh, but basically, yeah, Tyler's understanding of culture was somehow uh, similar to that of, of Durkheim. So he was, um, um, but since he was an anthropologist himself, he kind of looked deeper a little bit about how culture evolved. And then um, this is where, you know, we start to see more of this um, terminology about culture evolutionism. Um, and obviously, we can see influence of uh, Darwinian's understanding of evolution in Tyler's work. Um but it's a more uh, prominent uh, enunciation of the concept of evolution, that culture uh, that, for example, we have societies um, who are either, you know, savage, barbaric or civilized. And they it was almost a linear um, scale where we can place each culture uh, through one of these, um, you know, standpoint so mm. and, and you move you progress a culture evolves from being uh, uh, savage to barbaric and then finally uh, to civilized or uh, or modern which I think is also very much a, what would you say a product of its time because this was a time when especially England was experiencing you know colonial expansion height of an empire um, industry was exploding big technological changes going on uh in a quite like comparatively a short time span. And I find this kind of interesting because it's quite contrary to a lot of traditional ideas that you might find in religion, for example, where a lot of people have this idea that it was great at the beginning mm. and then everything gets progressively worse. <laughs> <laughs> and someday everything will go boof. Yeah. There will be an apocalypse or a cultural equivalent. Um, uh, a, yeah. An idea you find in... Dif many different uh, religions and worldviews. Um, yeah, and then and obviously it wasn't it wasn't just Tyler uh, who had kind of this this way of looking at culture. There were many other uh, social scientists who kind of shared the view. Um, there was also uh, Lewis Henry Morgan, and you know they also they together perceived um, you know culture to be static, which is something that we're going to come to mm -hmm. uh, towards the end of this episode. Is that they they wanted to rank, you know, the hierarchy um, of, of culture because it was this static um, thing that they can place on a scale uh, from a singular scale, from savage to, uh, to civilized, which kind of later we started to have other theories to counter this view of culture, which kind of brings us to culture um, uh, relativism. Um, and probably the most... Um, prominent um, anthropologist around that uh, or, or talked about cultural relativism was uh, Franz Boas. Uh, yeah, I think he coined the term, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, he was... Originally, he was a German-born um, um, uh, American anthropologist. Uh, he's a, He was actually coming from natural science background, so studied physics, geology. He was very fascinated with uh, things like geography and so on. Um, and, you know, his expedition in the uh, Barfin Island around the late 1800s kind of marked that beginning um, of, of his most important contribution to anthropology. There's a lot we can talk about in, um, 
in in, in Boaz's um, uh, career and, and history. Um, but basically, he kind of considered uh, he was considered at that time to be a revolutionary almost in his thinking about how in when we look at the historical context. This was mm-hmm. a time when there was a lot of debates uh, about uh, racism in the U.S. and and there was a lot of a lot of clashes um, that were going on in in the society. And he when he was you know, kind of thinking around around these notions, um, he was sort of considered to be revolutionary at that time. Um, and almost all anthropologists through time, uh, you know, kind of believed that all humans belong to one species necessarily, but a lot of a lot of scholars in the early two, uh, 20th century, uh, they believed that no, not all races... Uh, progress in the same time or in the same capacity mm. that they don't have the same capacity to uh, to for cultural development um, and this was kind of something that he was trying to argue against that no actually this is this is not necessarily true um, race doesn't determine how fast or 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 or, or, or if, if a particular race can uh, progress quicker than another Yeah, I think he was very famously conducted maybe the first, like, he tried to scientifically prove that phrenology, like, you know, skull measuring, is not a real (laughs) indicator of how intelligent or civilized, quote-unquote, you are. And and we have to remember that this was not too far ago. This was probably, like, a little bit over 100 years ago. Um, So in the context of history, this was actually quite recent yeah this was around the turn of the last century i think yeah. and i mean eugenics would not relinquish its hold especially on like the western uh scientific community for several decades um uh yeah and and so so in that sense you know culture were perceived to change through um through time and space um and and various levels um, um you know so he was kind of debunking the idea that culture can go through or goes through a linear progress from uh, from the savage to to the civilized. Um, so when because because when we you know have a this evolutionary view of culture uh, um, or uh, yeah like a culture evolution, um, we're 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 actually driving we're we're depriving it from uh, characteristics that um, you know shape or 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 or. or restructure uh, that culture in different situations so that it, we have we have many uh, factors around uh, around the culture that makes it change um, and so it's not about where are you in in that scale mm. um, because I think that kind of like the foundational idea of cultural relativism uh, that can still be kind of controversial is that it is non-normative there is not you know a certain level that a culture or like a group of people are going to that they should strive for or that they are going to reach at some point it's not there is no you know way of measuring on what level a a group is um yeah yeah so like basically what these um these thoughts were trying to argue is that you know, different human groups evolved um, sort of equally, but just in different ways, um, because every culture, every society went through different uh, changes, whether these were, for example, natural disasters that occurred in certain places and made people 
for example, migrate or move or uh, mobilize differently than others, or man-made um, you know, situations like wars and famine and, and, and these kind of things that um, made certain culture change um, in a particular way. Uh, so we start to see more or we start to uh, appreciate more the word culture change mm -hmm. rather than culture evolution. Um, and it's something that, you know, reinforces that idea that culture is constantly changing, that there is no point of time when culture stops to be mm -hmm. the most civilized uh, ever. And then that's that it's a full stop, that culture is constantly changing through different um, different times and different places. Uh, yeah, and so by by doing that, basically, we're kind of dismantling that superiority outlook on other cultures, um, and we're kind of um, moving away from that ethnocentric view of our culture is disappearing. We're trying to studying the other. We're studying the exotic. We're studying, and also we have to remember again the the historical context of of all of this. This was a time uh, when. Slavery was starting to be abolished, and, and colonialism was 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 taking place in uh, in Africa and many parts of the world. Um, and there was this kind of understanding of we're we're the modern um, society, and you are kind of the primitive uh, uh, groups of people, and we're trying to help you structure and modernize uh, oh, yeah. your the white man's burden, yeah. kind of thing that. <laughs> Because uh, white Europeans are the most, uh, specifically um, the English, if you ask the English, uh, <laughs> are the most advanced. So it's our duty to help everyone to reach our <laughs> level or improve their lives at the very least. And yeah. uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> That's yes, probably a, a discussion for another episode. But, uh, <laughs> but to basic be continued. <laughs> But basically, yeah, this just to give you an example of, of what this looks like um, or, or that understanding of cultural relativism and that every culture progresses differently um, is, for example, in Egypt, um, where I come from, most people use spoons to eat everything. Um, fork is uh, at least most people. And again, I, I can't generalize. So most people and most of the food is is you use a spoon for it. something like rice. A small pasta, you know, cubes, little cubes of meat, you use a spoon for it. Um, so the fork is rarely used. Now, for, for some people, this might be odd. I mean, um, for, for some people, it, the spoon might not be as, uh, as efficient. But I'm trying to figure out a food that would be very difficult to eat with a spoon. <laughs> right. But here's the thing. So the, the way f some of or, the, or most of the Egyptian cuisine is, is centered around is um, so there's a lot of vegetables they cut in small pieces and they put you put uh, like small meat cubes in almost a tomato sauce stew like uh, kind of dish. So you can imagine how difficult that would be if you're it's it's almost a soup kind of and mm. um, that you're trying to eat with a fork. Now that is challenging. And so um, the way the, the, the Egyptian cuisine or the Egyptian food has been um, developed over the years, it involves a lot of, I don't know, messiness maybe, like um, liquid, uh, liquidy food. And so a spoon is actually something that makes more sense to use. Um, and so this is kind of a way of understanding 
the rationale of why we use a spoon uh, in, in Egypt more than a fork from the point of view of the Egyptian people themselves because of all of these different factors that contributed to why we would use a spoon rather than a fork, mm. for example. I feel like there you could uh, hypothetically, for fun, present like an evolutionist scale of cutlery development because right. I think like I think even more loaded than <laughs> only using spoons all the time right. is that in a lot of uh, cultures you eat with your hands yeah yeah uh, and that's something that can be perceived as very dirty very not civilized so to speak yeah um, um and then in the other way um I've I think I had a, a discussion uh, before about this with someone and they were saying that well we don't really see the spoons being hygienic because mm. you actually put them in your mouth and then you put them again in, in a plate. And then in, in some cultures, you know, com- eating as a community from one main dish, one big dish, this is actually the, the it's more respectful way or a more um, in, in, in inclusive way of eating. And then if you're putting your spoon again in that communal dish, then how hygienic is that? <laughs> Uh, but when you're eating with your hand and you like kind of put the you don't really your hand doesn't touch your mouth really um this is a more hygienic way of of eating so it's basically we're when we look at these sort of examples uh we see that you know different there are many different uh, factors that uh we need to consider when when thinking of why people behave in a certain way or why certain performances take shape differently um in different cultures um And yeah, as I was saying, like this could have environmental uh, uh, reasoning. There, the, the the culture and the environment or the climate there um, uh, enables such practices to take place in a certain way, or it could be just a human interaction has been um, changing differently. Yeah, I mean, why fix something that's not broken? You know, if a spoon works. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then this is funny because I recall there was, and this yeah, this might sound weird, but. In school, once we had a seminar on food etiquette, mm-hmm. uh, and the the person who was giving the seminar was like talking to us about how you know you should actually use the fork and the knife in that certain way, and don't use the spoon only for soup. And I remember we were just laughing because clearly, you know, how can I eat all of these different soups with with a fork? But thinking of how this person was structuring the I don't know the curriculum of that seminar or the the content of the seminar. Clearly, they didn't put in consideration that you're talking to an audience who cannot physically <laughs> use a fork uh, to eat there. So maybe we, you can see now with you know globalization and like we we eat pasta and we eat you know uh, steak and all of that. And yes, there is a use for forks and so on. Um, but when thinking of of these different cultures and thinking from one's own culture. Um, projecting it on others, then uh, you start to have that <laughs> ethnocentric view. Um, yeah, and and I think that brings us to um, ethnocentrism, and um, and and it's very important to have this discussion, um, not just in anthropology, but mm. in 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 everyday life, um, because um, you know early anthropologists they had an ethnocentric views on on culture, and um, and and now we, we're we're tr- We're able to, or we're trying anthropology. The anthropology as a discipline has been trying to, uh, to step away from that and look at uh, culture change instead. Yeah, because the 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 basic the definition of ethnocentrism is you know consciously or unconsciously assuming that 
your way of doing things is I don't think it, it, it can be you know that you think that it's inherently imper- uh, superior but also just that it's the norm that this is the like the normal way to do it and everything else is somehow an aberration right uh, and that's something that I think is very important to talk about because it's so it's so ingrained in many ways that it's not something that you actively think about a lot of the time. But if you go somewhere else where you realize that you're actually the one who is not doing like everyone else, then it's like, oh, okay, right. Yeah. And because we have to remember that sometimes or most of the time, our culture for us is is something that we take for granted. We don't Mm. think twice about whether we reach for a spoon or fork or whether we um, we say hello, um, um, handshake or hug or kiss or whatever. Um, we don't think uh, about these things too much. These sort of behaviors and that are embedded in our culture, in our language, our behaviors, they're all embedded that we just take them for granted, that this is normal. And when we start to see someone who's behaving in a certain, differently than those norms that we have you know, considered to be normal, then this is where we start to question why are they doing that? And I think this is a very, it's it's obviously very healthy to be, um, very good to be, Mm. you know, questioning one's own culture as well. Like, why are we, you know, behaving in that certain way as well? Um, To be able to be critical of our own culture and and to be able to kind of break any sort of superiority uh, or ethnocentrism that uh, that we might have. Yeah, and I think it's also worth mentioning that now we are talking about, you know, my culture, your culture, etc. But I don't think that... I'm not sure there is a single person on Earth that belongs to one single culture if you have a very broad definition of culture because that is also going to, you know, not just um, the country you're born in or, you know, where your parents were born is going to affect uh, your cultural belonging, so to speak, but, uh, you know where have you grown up? Like, where do you live? Um, are you man, woman, neither? You know, th- th- right. there's uh, so many other factors. Um, you can live in the same country or even the same city and have vastly different experiences. And I think that's kind of like when you start talking about that, you also reach the point where the concept of culture in itself is almost limiting right? because yeah. it becomes so... The idea that culture is something that is a thing, something that yeah. is a constant that you are brought up with and you have it or you don't, is I still I feel like I still see when people use culture in common in common speech, that is often kind of an assumption that and in some I think I've seen in some circles that some people almost use it as a shorthand for like race the way they would have done Mm. 150 years ago that you know oh those people they're not like us because of their culture um they don't treat women well that's just their culture like you know it's very and and hmm. you you almost as you said like it becomes that um kind of abstract um thing that uh, that that culture and and you're able to 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 place to put your hands on the boundaries of right it becomes a box yeah Exactly, but it's not a box. <laughs> it it cannot be a box. Yeah, that's yeah, that's this. This is um, also yeah. This is personally. This is how I, I I perceive culture. Is that there's, it's a it's a 
gradient of of many different identity identities and understandings um which i think is is quite beautiful because um when it it when we try to think of it as uh, what what is the norm in the swedish culture or what is the norm in the in uh, the egyptian culture that is ve- that excludes all the variations of the people that you were just saying that the exist in 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 that certain context or that certain country or culture that people do things differently uh, the way you you know make a, a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or uh, or a jam sandwich in in your house might be slightly different than how i how i do it um this reminds me of how there's like a huge i've been led to believe that there is a in the german language there's a very big debate on uh what you know, particle you use before the word Nutella. <laughs> that kind of thing can vary depending on uh, location, even if you speak the same language. And people can get quite heated about it, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then are, are you then, are you German enough? Are you Egyptian enough? <laughs> like, uh, I think, yeah, even even in like, in the most informal, you know, settings with, with friends and so on, and we talk about, uh, you know, in for for example in Egypt like which parts are actually you know the true egyptians or uh, um and and yeah it's it's uh, it's very interesting to to be thinking of of that culture has mm. all of these different variations and 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 uh, and it's a very uncomfortable thing to think about yes it's very uncomfortable to think that i can't define what is culture or what is um an egyptian culture for example for for a lot of people at least uh or for many people it it is a bit could be unsettling that uh, they're not able to to uh, to identify something as their own culture or from another mm. and and i personally i find it totally okay like i i actually like when i'm not able to define things as clearly because i am a believer that um It, it we put too many we have been putting too many labels and too many definitions and things um and this is probably not the best way to go about mm. our lives i do think that uh, deconstructing culture as a concept is a good thing i think it's necessary to have that conversation at the same time i can sometimes feel that you know as an academic i can sit down and say that culture isn't real you know as much as i want but right. that doesn't change that there are for example people who maybe have uh migrant parents who might feel very alienated from what they what they feel is you know that's their culture one of their cultures mm. however you want to express that and i can't say that that is not a valid experience either um so uh Yeah. It's a complicated word. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah, there 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 are people or there are communities where they feel like no, this is the right thing to do and this is where I think it's important to talk about the right and the wrong uh in 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 that sense as well uh, in culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a right thing to do? Is there a ro- like a wrong way of doing things? Um and and again, I I understand how it could be problematic for certain people that know they need to to do things in a certain way and 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 feel that they, there are you know truths with a capital t um and it could be uncomfortable when we're talking about 
the fact that culture could be, you know, it, it is relative and everyone has mm. their own understanding of how, how they live their lives. Yeah. I want to amend and say that it's not that I don't think culture is real. Like, I think the things that we classify as culture, which can be everything from how we eat to how we move to Talk. what we say, mm-hmm. uh, those things are obviously real. But culture is a social construct as such. It is not something that is, once again, it is not biologically inherent in us as people. And I think that's something we talk about um, the concept of cultural relativism and kind of the discomfort that people can feel because, uh, you know, partly because there is belief in that there is like a, would you call it a fundamental truth perhaps, Mm. but also because culture, the things that make up culture is often important parts of people's lives it's what they you know the way they've done things <laughs> sometimes for Centuries, generations yeah. and it's something that uh should rightfully you know sometimes it does need to be valued or protected especially when we're talking about marginalized groups who there have been systematic attempts to eradicate uh their traditions or their customs or their ways of lives um but it's in, I think yeah, that's something that we have talked about before, <laughs> not in this podcast, but before, um, that there is that it can be very discomforting uh, yeah. to have to kind of deconstruct these things that you take for granted. And I think that's why the concept of cultural relativism is something that can be very... It's interesting that I've personally noticed that people from all over the political spectrum, for example, can have a very negative view of the word cultural relativism because it's seen as equivalent to moral relativism, for example. Mm. So people who are very right-wing, very conservative, might be very uncomfortable just with the idea that, you know, their ethnocentric point of view is not actually the right way to view the world. But I've also seen people who are very uh, far out on the left, who are very uh, progressive, who are uncomfortable with the idea that uh, that they see cultural relativism as somehow somehow inimical to um, the idea that there are universal human rights, for example, that should not be violated. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, this this is um, a very good point. And I think it, it, it does invite us all to, to be thinking about the impacts of, of looking at culture from from and I don't I don't want to put ethnocentrism and cultural relativism as kind of another binary um, one opposed to the other, mm. um, but uh, it, it does invite us to think about the way we perceive other cultures that are different to us and and how how our culture um, impacts um, everyone who, are, who who surrounds us and I think um, th- and this is this is also in the conversation around culture change and the ways culture change uh, over time and you know being affected by other cultures around them uh, is how much of an impact are we making on um, enabling other cultures to or other or other behaviors to you know to exist around us and 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 and, um, and, and carry out um, their lives differently um, from kind of um, shutting down other other understandings of, of, of living life and behaviors and so on that 
uh, we just think we don't agree with. Mm. Uh, and I think having this uh, open mind of of the of the variations and the gradients, even within one's own culture, because that's something we don't even think about sometimes, is that within our own culture, there are all of these variations that sometimes we try to uh, suppress that, no, this is... And again, it goes back to what you were just saying, Matilda, um, that, no, mine... I, I know that this is kind of the right thing to do or this is the right way to do things. Um, so, yeah. I think this can kind of lead into this discussion of uh, our experiences as anthropologists um, because... Cultural relativism is a theory, but it is also something that we have to kind of consider a practice in some ways. Um, at least that is what I was taught when I started doing anthropology, is that cultural relativism is a tool for us. It's something that we have to keep in mind when we enter um, a context that is foreign to us, that if we are too steeped in our own ideas of what is right and what is wrong, or, you know then that can actually prevent us from understanding the people that we are supposed to learn from. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think, I think this is obviously with, um, with such a, such a limited time to talk about this, we can talk about this for hours, <laughs> but um, I think, yeah, it's, it's a, it is an important uh, when thinking of anthropology and, and, and culture and so on to, to think of, those changes that um, happened throughout the time of how how different social scientists and anthropologists looked at culture change um, and and also understand these arguments and these theories uh, in the historical context of of when this was going on and what what was happening back then. So when we're talking about Tyler's contributions and and, and ideas about um, and culture evolution, we have to understand that this was happening at a time when, this was uh, there was a lot of political and a lot of a lot of movements in the world that were centered around you know it's we're we're kind of the modern world and and we're trying to modernize everyone else but obviously there were a lot of um, ifs and buts in 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 in, in there um, and then t towards that time when we started to think about you know cultural relativism and the, and then the different um, subcultures if that is even a correct term to mm. use but these variations of, of subcultures in 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 the world and how they impact one another and how they develop um, um, or not develop but change uh, one another until this modern day which is still um, we are still trying to figure out uh, our behaviors and investigate mm. you know uh, our our own cultures uh, and I think it's uh, it's it's quite useful to think of of one's own culture, even uh, from that point of view of, of that culture, mm. um, relativism and culture change. Because one of the another teacher I had when I started doing anthropology, um, who kind of opened up this question for me for the first time, he was doing it in the context of, uh, I don't want to use the word culture. I think culture as a concept has like outlived its use because it has become so common and people have their own ideas of what it means. He was like, I want to scrap culture <laughs> as a concept. <laughs> and I'm not sure we are prepared to do that yet. But it is uh, it is a word that exists <laughs> and therefore should be uh, examined. 
Um, I wonder if how many times we have mentioned the word culture in this episode. If we yeah. went back, Sh- and should we make a competition count, uh, out of it? <laughs> <laughs> get people to tell us in, on Instagram? <laughs> um, yeah, so I think uh, yeah, I think that's um, that's pretty much what we uh, we wanted to discuss and 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 share with you our thoughts on on culture and understanding culture and cultural change. Um, if you have any thoughts or if you have any things that you would like to to share with us. Uh, feel free to send them to us on on Instagram on the Ethnographina uh, Instagram, uh, and yeah, this uh, podcast was um, Love, Death, and Desire, uh, brought to you by the uh, uh, Ethnographina Student Association at Uppsala University in Sweden. And see you in the next episode. Yes. <laughs> Goodbye.